Welcome to the Blue Collar Scholar. I have worked manual labor jobs for my entire life. I have worked as a pastor, and I am taking my first steps into the exciting world of academics. In this podcast, we will dive into history, theology, current events, and perhaps even other topics along the way. In this series, we will explore the American Civil War, the foundational event in the United States' rise from a brand new nation to full-fledged world power. The Blue Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Wrights. Music by Coma Media from Pixabay. The purpose of this podcast is to educate. Use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. Thank you for joining us. Today we're going to talk about Reconstruction. Reconstruction can refer to three things depending on how somebody uses it. It can refer to the political reconstruction of the Union by the reintegration of Confederate states, the social reconstruction of society that officially ended slavery and established the framework for eventual racial equality and justice, or the physical and economic reconstruction of the war of the war-torn South. When I was growing up, or the, as I learned about Reconstruction, I always kind of assumed it was the last one. Me too. I always just thought Reconstruction was, well, the war was pretty bad. This was the time when they rebuilt the area the war was at, which is kind of how World War II ended. The With the Marshall Plan from the United States, there was a, a big effort to rebuild the parts of France and I mean, in England to a certain degree, but the parts of France, Belgium, the Netherlands, and, and Germany, because Germany, West Germany at that point was our ally, uh, rebuilding and Italy, rebuilding the areas that had been devastated by war. There was a little bit of that, but usually when we're talking about Reconstruction, we're actually talking about the first two. So we're going to analyze all three today. First, the political reconstruction of the Union by the reintegration of Confederate states. By that analysis, Reconstruction was 100% successful because every state that seceded in 1860 and 1861 was returned to the Union between 1863 and 1870. Each state has a slightly different story about how they were returned to the Union. We won't go into each one of those stories, but I will point out some highlights as we look at the timeline of the states, how they come in. But first, let's talk about what was the Reconstruction plans. Lincoln was the first one to get started on Reconstruction Plan on something he called the 10% Plan. He basically wanted to lower the threshold. So like if you watch a a dog show and the smaller dogs are the ones that aren't very talented, they lower that bar so the dog is just a little little jump over the bar, not not the the real big experience in big dogs. So Lincoln said that if a state was ready to be admitted, they had to they had to abolish slavery and of course he was he was comfortable with gradual abolition abolition so west virginia for instance in west virginia's establishment they instituted gradual emancipation now eventually the 13th amendment will take the gradual part just completely away but between west virginia's becoming a state and the 13th amendment going into effect they had gradual abolition it was in the process of going away so lincoln was pro- uh, okay with gradual so they had to abolish slavery and 
10% of the voters or those that were eligible to vote in 1860 had to sign oaths of loyalty. And those oaths of loyalty didn't have to lie or swear that they had never been disloyal to the Union, but just that as of now and going forward, I will be loyal to the United States of America. And as soon as you reach that 10% platform and abolish slavery, at least gradual abolition, then the states can be reconstructed. So under Lincoln's watch, before he got assassinated, Tennessee and Louisiana and I believe Arkansas had already begun the process of, of clearing those thresholds. But at the same time, radical Republicans in Congress had a different plan. That was called the Wade Davis Plan. They wanted to raise that bar a little bit. They wanted only championship dogs showing up to this, uh, to this round of the dog show. So for the Wade Davis plan, a state had to, first of all, not 10%, but they needed a majority. So 50.1% of those who were eligible to vote in 1860. So, if, so for instance, let's say a state had 100,000 eligible voters in 1860. Well, they would have to have 50,001 voters sign or declare uh, allegiance to the Union, to the United States of America. Not only that, but some radicals in Congress wanted that uh, declaration of oath to be that not only am I now and f from this point forward loyal to the Union, but I've always been loyal to the Union. I've never had anything to do with secession. The Confederates were evil. I never had anything to do with them. Which is problematic because one thing, it's just going to encourage people to lie. I mean, seriously, are you, South Carolina would never be able to be reconstructed until that whole generation is dead. That's basically what the Wade Davis plan would do, was it would delay reconstruction of states, especially the harder the, harder the line states, the cotton belt from Louisiana to South Carolina and Florida. Those states basically would have to wait a generation until a new group of voters could be born and then rise to the age of 21 and then be able to de declare their allegiance to the United States. The Wade Davis plan also called for Confederate states to repudiate their war debt, which I, I'm not entirely sure I understand this, but basically the idea is that the states wouldn't put U.S. citizens, including all the citizens of the Confederacy, because once they're reconstructed, they're now citizens of the United States. No citizen would be, or no citizen, no business, nothing, would be responsible for paying for the debts incurred by rebellion. So if Tennessee bought 100 howitzers for a million dollars for a war against the United States, that Tennessee could not then ask U.S. citizens, in this case Tennessee citizens, through taxation, they could not ask U.S. citizens to pay for those debts. You cannot honor debts that were incurred in rebellion against the United States. Next, they had to abolish slavery, and as far as I can tell, the Wade Davis plan made no allowance for gradual abolition. It was absolute abolition of slavery, and the Wade Davis plan required states to repudiate their act of secession. They had to state that they were wrong to secede, and some states had no problem doing that. You probably couldn't get South Carolina to do that now. Now, after the Reconstruction Amendments passed, and we'll talk about those amendments 13, 14, and 15. After the Reconstruction Amendments passed, states then had to affirm those. Those amendments had to be affirmed as part of Reconstruction. So let's look at a quick timeline. There were 11 Confederate states, 
13 if you count Missouri and Kentucky, but officially those states never seceded. So the Confederate governments that represented those stars on the flag, they just disappeared. And the Union governments of Kentucky and Missouri just continued on. So there's 11 states that seceded, but we do have a 12th one to start with, and that's what we're going to talk about. That's West Virginia. West Virginia was admitted to the Union on June 20th, 1863. So it's the only part of the Confederacy that actually rejoined the Union during the war. The way they did it, and I'm not an expert on this, I did, did some reading on it this week, and I think I understand exactly what happened. The northwestern counties of Virginia had never been overly sympathetic with secession. And so when Virginia seceded, there was already, up in the mountains, there was already a, heart, a feeling that they wanted to separate and, and go back with the United States. So with Virginia officially seceded, those counties, plus a few other counties that were added, that's why West Virginia has a little weird tail on it today, a couple of other counties that were added for railroad purposes so that those railroads would be part of the Union. And by the way, those counties still wanted to be secession counties. There's, I mean, there, there was a movement to secede from the seceders who seceded. But those, those counties in West Virginia were added to for railroad purposes. So those counties in the, in the Northwest got together and formed a new government of Virginia without, the, without the, the approval of the actual government of Virginia. They just declared themselves, well, the government of Virginia simply doesn't exist anymore. They've, they've disappeared. We don't know where they're at. I mean, of course, they're with the Confederate States, but Virginia's still part of the United States. That's the whole theory behind the Union war aims, was, or at least the Lincoln administration's idea of the war aims, that all of the states still exist. It just happens to be that all their citizens are in rebellion. So Virginia exists, but doesn't have a government, so guess what? We're going to form one. And so those northwestern counties formed the reconstructed government of Virginia. And then the reconstruction government of Virginia then approved West Virginia's request to leave. So West Virginia, the West Virginia counties acted like they were the whole state of Virginia and then approved their request to leave the whole state of Virginia. And then the United States federal government quickly approved that. They said, all right, sounds good to us. And so West Virginia left, became its own state. It seceded from Virginia because Virginia seceded from the United States. And like I said, Tennessee, Arkansas, and Louisiana had begun the process of Reconstruction before the end of the war because significant portions of those states were under Union control before the war ended. And Louisiana is a little tricky, but with Arkansas and Tennessee, significant portions of those states had never really been disloyal in the first place. East Tennessee was on the cusp of, of doing their own West Virginia. I guess it would, have, it would have been called East Tennessee, or they preferred the name Franklin. It would have become the state of Franklin. In fact, if you drive around East Tennessee, you'll see things like Franklin State Bank. You'll see a lot of the use of the word Franklin to, as, as kind of a cultural artifact to describe that, that point in history where East Tennessee was on the cusp of becoming their own state so that they could rejoin the Union. It never happened, but Tennessee had a lot of uh, Union support in their populace. So it's no surprise that after the Civil War is over, Tennessee is the first Confederate state to be fully reintegrated into the Union on July 24th, 1866. And they'll be the only state added to the Union for over a year. In fact, almost two years. Because the next states that get added to the Union 
from the old confederacy don't get added until June 1868. But in the summer of 1868, a whole bunch of them get added in mass. So Arkansas gets added on June 22nd, 1868. I'm not going to say 1868 each time. I'm just going to say the dates. And then Florida on June 25th. North Carolina on June 4th. Louisiana on July 9th. I'm not entirely sure why Louisiana took so long because Louisiana had quite a few. It, it had passed Lincoln's 10% threshold very early on. Uh, so I'm not entirely sure why it took them so much longer than Tennessee, but Louisiana doesn't, doesn't come until July 9th. The same day as South Carolina, the harshest of the uh, Confederate states. So South Carolina actually beats a couple other states, like Alabama, July 13th. And then the last state in that summer to rejoin is Georgia on July 21st. But we need to put an asterisk next to Georgia because Georgia gets reconstructed, added back to the Union, and then promptly expels all the black members of the state legislature, including a senator. Maybe more than one senator, but at least one senator. And so the United States federal government reestablishes military control of Georgia. So they're reconstructed and then they're deconstructed. And so Georgia will, obviously they're, they're a state now, they will be reconstructed, but they'll actually end up being at the end of the line. They don't get reconstructed until July 15th, 1870. So they actually get recon, reconstructed twice. Now Virginia, nobody gets reconstructed in 1869, but Virginia's in the process. They get reconstructed, Virginia gets reconstructed January 26th, 1870. As best I can tell, Virginia's holdup was because Virginia had an extra condition. Not only did they have to fulfill all of the terms we've talked about already, like abolishing slavery and then at this point uh, accepting the Reconstruction Amendments, but Virginia had to also retroactively approve West Virginia's move to, to leave because the federal government was put in an interesting situation. You want to reconstruct Virginia you can't be fully reconstructed unless they throw West Virginia under the bus. And West Virginia is a U.S. state. Whether they got there by a little bit of subterfuge is irrelevant at this point. They've, they're a political unit as part of the Union, and the, as far as the federal government is concerned, we cannot make West Virginia rejoin Virginia. So part of Virginia's terms to rejoin the Union included, included accepting the existence of West Virginia. So apparently that took some time to get around. I think if I was a Virginian, I would probably be a little sore over that. But they eventually they accept that. They retroactively approve West Virginia's move, and they join in January. And then finally the holdouts, Mississippi, uh, same year, 1870. Mississippi is on February 23rd, and then Texas on March 30th. And like I said, in July, Georgia brings up the end of the train because they get reconstructed for the second time. Okay, so I mentioned the three Reconstruction Amendments. Let's take a second to look at those. The first of the Reconstruction Amendments actually passes under Lincoln. It doesn't get fully ratified because you have to have three-fourths of the states ratify an amendment before it becomes active. So it doesn't get ratified until after Lincoln's assassination, but it is accepted in January of 1865. This is the plot of the movie Lincoln, which to this day, I personally feel is one of the top 10 movies ever made. I just love the movie Lincoln. Daniel Day-Lewis as Lincoln, 
Tommy Lee Jones is in it as Thaddeus Stevens. It's one of the few movies that doesn't involve a superhero or a lightsaber that I can watch over and over and over again. I've probably watched Lincoln 20 times. I just love it. It's so wonderful. Um, I think it's pretty true to fact. Yes. It's, I would say it's 90% true to fact. There's a few things that are ramped up for drama's sake. So, for instance, as the amendment is being passed in the House of Representatives, Spielberg wanted to keep the drama up, so he had them start with people voting no against the amendment. But he also he wanted to stay true to history by because at the time votes were made by states, so they would call states, and the first state was uh, Connecticut, and so they would the Connecticut voters would vote, and they so Spielberg wanted the early votes to be no to ramp up the tension, but in actuality every representative for Connecticut voted for the 13th Amendment. So my thinking is, it's, I hate to, to criticize Spielberg, who I think is the greatest director of all time. I hate to criticize him, but what I would have done is I would have abandoned the, if you wanted to ramp up the tension, just pretend like they didn't call state by state. Just start calling random members of the House so you start with some no votes and then you start mixing in the yes. But so that's an example of a minor historical problem. But for the most part, I think it's, I'd say it's 90% accurate. It's a very good movie. Uh, I cannot, I can't, other than that, I can't think of any criticism I have. It is one of my favorite movies of all time. Okay, so 13th Amendment. We're going to read it in full. It's not very long. In fact, I think we'll read them all in full, even though the 14th Amendment is long. The 13th Amendment says this, Section 1, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. And Section 2, Congress shall have power to enforce this or article by appropriate legislation. In short, the 13th Amendment abolishes slavery in the United States of America except for being convicted of a crime. And that ended up being quite a big loophole because it eventually led, it unfortunately led to thousands of miscarriages of justice. The South ended up instituting various laws like vagrancy laws. There had already been vagrancy laws to prevent homeless people, and there are vagrancy laws now to prevent homeless people from gathering in this or that town. But the, the way South uses vagrancy laws is uh, a lot of vagrancy laws have rules in them against idleness. So all a sheriff or a police officer had to do was accuse a black person of being idle. And they can arrest them for vagrancy laws and then send them off to work camps. There were sundown laws. So sundown laws, I don't know when they went completely illegal, but I know there were sundown laws well into the 1900s where certain towns would have laws that say no black person can be in this town after dark. So, for instance, if Erie was a sundown town, then a black family could come in and eat at the pizza place for lunch, but after sun went down, they had to be out of town, which meant that no black person can live in town. If any black person was living in town, they could arrest them for against sundown, sundown laws, or you could just snatch a black person and falsely accuse them of violating sundown laws. It's not just a southern phenomenon. You found them all over the north as well. Indiana had a lot of them. Uh, it was not uncommon. You also had segregation violations. So once uh, segregation laws are put in place, you can accuse uh, a black person of using a white water fountain or using a black or using a white bathroom. Uh, you could use various other laws. You could really you didn't have to even you just you could just accuse a black person of anything of being 
a Martian with a ray gun. It doesn't matter. You just if if, if a law enforcement agent was unreputable enough, they could just accuse a black person of anything they want. And the worst case of this, although it certainly wasn't the only, the worst case of this is Sugarland, Texas. So Sugarland, Texas, there was the plantations there just basically kept functioning as slave plantations. But instead of owning individuals for the plantation, the owners of those sugar plantations would come up with under-the-table contracts with sheriffs throughout the South. And there would be quotas. So if you were the sheriff of Mobile, Alabama, you would have a contract with a plantation that you were you were to provide 100 laborers a year and so if it was getting towards the end of the fiscal year and you had only gotten 50 or 60 uh, laborers at this point then you just start rounding up black people and accusing them of anything and then sending them off to Sugarland to work in the sugar plantations and the real tragedy of this I mean it's already everything about this is tragic but the real tragedy is that the one thing that the lost cause has to say about slavery that's actually true is that there was an economic incentive for most slave owners to treat their slaves well. It doesn't mean they actually did it, but there was the economic incentive to treat their slaves well. In Sugarland, where's the economic incentive? Because these plantations have contracts with sheriffs to provide so many laborers a year. So who cares if you work your laborers to death? I'm going to get more coming uh, later in, in the year anyway. And so a lot of innocent black people who were duly convicted of a crime they never committed uh, died as slaves after the 13th Amendment passed. It is a sad part of our history. This also led, by the way, to increased crime rates amongst blacks, and those statistics have been used against black people to this day. You'll often hear about crime statistics, and that ignores the fact that now some, sometimes in some regions there is increased crime rate in an area. And I'm not saying that every black person that gets accused of a crime is innocent. That's certainly not true. I certainly know that not every white person that gets accused of a crime is innocent. There are guilty people who commit crimes across every race and age and gender. That being said, there is a significant amount of people who get accused of crimes that they did not commit. And some of them are white, but a lot more of them are black or people of other color. And then those statistics then get, it's, it's, a, it's a cascading cycle. Then the statistics get used against those populations to say, well, they're more crime-ridden than we are. And that's not fair. It's just not. We're seeing that today. All of these people that have been shot and killed, it's been because of their color, many of them. Well, racism has become trickier. In the past, it, it was real simple. White, you know, the white person thought the black person was subhuman, and because you're black, you can't eat in this restaurant. Because you're black, you can't live in the sundown town. That kind of racism doesn't really exist today unless you belong to a certain secret society, like the KKK or neo-Nazi group. Uh, by the way, that certain secret society, does anybody watch Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah. that's, that's also one of my favorite. I don't know if it's top 10, but I'd put it top 20, 25 movies. I, I love it. Here's the problem we run into today. So you got like Philando Castile, the young man. Um, I don't know how young. I think he was in his 30s. He's being pulled over by a police officer, and he has a gun on him. 
he he does. The first thing he says is, Officer, I have a gun. I mean you no harm. What would you like me to do? That is what the NRA tells its members to do when you're being pulled over by a cop. If you are legally armed, you need to inform the police officer so they don't freak out. And unfortunately, this officer freaked out. Now, in Philando Castile's case, the officer was not white. He was Hmong. He was an Asian uh, I don't know if he was an immigrant or if he was second or third generation American, but he, was, he wasn't he was a white person. He was a person of color as well. So, like I said, it gets trickier. Now, if that was Phil Castle, a 35-year-old male, who then says, officer, I'm legally armed and whatnot, would the officer have reacted in the same way? I can't know that, but I've got to assume that the answer is probably no. We as a society are just less freaked out about clean-cut white boys owning firearms than we are about clean-cut black men owning firearms. And there are YouTube videos that show this. Uh, one of my favorites, I don't know if favorite's the right word, but there is uh, there was a group, a small group, that wanted to make a point, so they went into a town that allowed open carry of any firearm. So they started with the, the white member of this group that was making the video, puts on a, on a white t-shirt and slings a, a, a rifle, an AR-15. So he slings an AR-15 over his shoulder and just walks through town. And then maybe like an hour later, same town, they take a black person. No, he's not wearing, he's not, he doesn't have like gang tattoos or he's not even wearing a hoodie. He's just a, just a black person walking through town with the same weapon. And he doesn't get 20 feet in town before the cops have pulled him over with guns out telling him to get on the ground. I'm not saying, once again, I'm not saying that there are no guilty black people. And I'm not necessarily defending open carry laws. And I'm, I'm a Second Amendment supporter. I'm not a Second Amendment enthusiast. As I, I think I made the joke in here before that if I were to ever run for Congress, my highest ambition would be to get a C rating from the NRA. I'm a gun rights moderate. What I am saying is that to this day, the idea that a black man is more likely to be a criminal than a white man is something that we're having a hard time purging from our national DNA. And a lot of it can be traced back to th these laws that were made uh, at this time. Interestingly enough, if you trace the crime statistics back to the antebellum period, you don't see a great high rate of crime, unless you count escaping slavery. Uh, if, if you count that, it's not like in the antebellum period, black people were frequently out killing and stealing and raping. It just was not true. The r rates of crime amongst blacks and whites of the same age and gender categories, same socioeconomic status, has almost always just balanced out. It's, it's uh, a general distribution throughout society as we would expect statistically. But a lot of the idea that black people are more susceptible to crime comes from this, the Reconstruction era, era and the way the South used the 13th Amendment against blacks. Okay, let's look at the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment is a little more wordy. I'm going to go ahead and read the whole thing, but it, it'll take a bit of time, but that's fine. Uh, the Amendment 14. Section 1, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, 
liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of laws. So this actually is the first time that, that birthright citizenship is fully established. In the 1890s, this will get challenged by a Chinese immigrant. Actually, if I remember right, no, it's challenged by a Chinese-American, a man born in the United States, but his parents were immigrants, and then he was born here, and then he lived in uh, the Chinatown section of Los Angeles, and he was a sailor. And one time, when he came back in, the state of California's laws against Chinese immigration meant that he could not come back to California. He could not get off the ship, even though he was born here. And he successfully challenged that with this amendment. And so birthright citizenship has been a cornerstone of United States law since the 14th Amendment. And honestly, before the 14th Amendment, this just really codified it. Section 2. Uh, yeah, I don't need to read Section 2. Section 2 basically says that people who are, or the amount of representatives and electors that are appointed to your state, uh, basically this is the repeal of the Three-Fifths Compromise. Every eligible voter will be counted for the representatives in the House of Representatives and electors for president. And if a state starts disenfranchising large numbers of eligible people of color, then they will have the same amount deducted from their representation in Congress, which is the courage that the Constitutional Convention should have had at the very beginning. If the South wasn't going to, if the South was going to treat blacks like farm equipment, then at very least, well, what they really should have done is not treat black people like farm equipment. But if they were going to, then they shouldn't have had any representation in Congress. Section 3. No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or an elector of president or vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as any member of a state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, uh, by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such disability. That's legal wording. Let me put it this way. Every person who had ever taken an oath to the Constitution of the United States and then joined the Confederacy, that person would be ineligible to hold any office in which you would have to take an oath of allegiance to the Constitution. So anybody who had been, who had been a military officer or a member of Congress or the Senate or president or vice president or any kind of ambassador or minister of the United States or any member of the cabinet who then turned around and rebelled against the United States, they would be ineligible to ever hold any of those offices ever again. But if there happened to be a certain case like, I'm assuming this had to have happened with James Longstreet, because Longstreet goes on to be the U.S. minister to the Ottoman Empire. He, John, James Longstreet was a Confederate general in the Confederate States of America. So either Longstreet had never ha held an office with the United States before, or 
he was voted by Congress to be okay. He, you're okay to, to, to rejoin. Very few Confederates are ever able to hold office again uh, in the federal government. Quite a few of them will go on to be, hold state office. You see quite a few governors of Georgia and governors of Mississippi of former Confederates. But you see very few Confederates holding federal government positions after, after the war. Section 4. The validity of the public debt of the United States authorized by law, including debts incurred for payment of pensions and bounties for services in suppressing insurrection or rebellion shall not be questioned. In other words, even though southern states were in rebellion, southern uh, citizens could still be expected to pay taxes that would then go to pay pensions uh, for soldiers who fought against the rebellion. So anybody, any southerner who would want to use that legal framework to try to get around paying taxes or tariffs, you can't. The public debt of those who are loyal to the United States cannot be questioned. But neither the United States nor any state shall assume or pay any debt or obligation incurred in aid of insurrection or rebellion against the United States, or any claim for the loss of or emancipation of any slave. But all such debts, obligations, and claims shall be held illegal and void. So all of the debts incurred by the... We talked about this uh, 20 minutes ago. Any debts incurred by the Confederate States of America or the states in the Confederate States of America that were incurred for the purpose of rebelling against the United States, those debts cannot be honored. And also, this blocked the idea that slave owners should be paid reparations. These days, we talk about reparations being paid to the descendants of slaves. But the early debate on reparations was whether or not every slave owner should be paid for the slaves that they lost. So reparations has always been a political issue, and it hasn't always been just one side of the issue. And then finally, uh, Congress shall have the power to enforce this amendment. And then the 15th Amendment just plugged a loophole because the 14th Amendment hadn't been clear about voting rights. The 15th Amendment says, The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. And the Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by legislation. This, the uh, previous condition of servitude was important because a lot of states tried to get around the 13th Amendment with grandfather clauses. And those grandfather clauses, by the way, would continue even after the 15th Amendment. States would just do them anyway and then dare the federal government to enforce their, their laws. Basically, what a grandfather clause said was that if your grandfather was eligible to vote, then you could be eligible to vote. And if your grandfather wasn't eligible to vote, then you won't be eligible to vote. So basically, if your grandfather was a slave, you're out of luck. What they had hoped was that if you keep the grandfather clause going, then the, that generation eventually would be grandfathers, and then their grandkids wouldn't be able to vote, and that could just go on in perpetuity. So basically, if you're a descendant of a slave in any way, you'll never be able to vote. That was the, the purpose of the grandfather clauses. The 15th Amendment was designed to hopefully do away with those. The previous condition of servitude could not affect the right to vote. The 15th Amendment was uh, completed by the way I think about it is the right to vote was completed with the 19th Amendment in 1920 which allowed women to vote, the 24th Amendment which eliminated poll taxes, and the 26th Amendment 
1970, which moved the voting age to 18. Now, because of these amendments and because of the federal government's military occupation of the South, 16 black men were able to sit in Congress during the Reconstruction era. So there's a drawing that appeared in one of the newspapers of uh, the first class of black congressmen. So let's go through the list. I don't know much about these guys, so mostly we're just going to read the names, and, and you can see the state they're from. But you got Joseph Rainey, uh, Jefferson Long, Robert DeLarge, Robert Elliott, and Benjamin Turner, Josiah Wales, Richard Kane, John Lynch, Alonzo Ronsier, James T. Rapier, Jeremiah Harrison, John Adam Hyman, Charles Nash, and then my boy, Robert Smalls, and then James O'Hara. Uh, Robert Smalls, I need to be careful. I, I meant my boy as like, yeah, that's my boy. Well, you gotta be careful. Boy has been used against black people for generations as an insult. So let me put it this way. My man, Robert Smalls, and James O'Hara. If you want to hear about Robert Smalls, go back to uh, a couple of podcasts ago, and, and I talk at length about his daring. He absconded with the uh, ship he was familiar with and successfully got past all the Confederate checkpoints in Charleston Harbor and then went out to the Union blockade and joined it. And then later he served in Congress representing South Carolina. We need, we need statues to this guy. He is so cool. And we need a movie as soon as possible. He is, he is such a neat dude. Not only did these black men serve in Congress during Reconstruction, but over 600 state legislators in every southern state uh, were black. That still, by the way, was not the majority. It, it never reached majority status, but it was a great start. Unfortunately, the great start would be a great hiccup. The black people would not reach this level of representation until well into the civil rights era again. What happened? Well, what happened was the presidential election of 1876. Rutherford B. Hayes versus Samuel J. Tilden. Now, after the Civil War, Republicans were very strong. In fact, the, the only Democrat to serve as president between Buchanan, you know, at the beginning of the Civil War, uh, and Wilson, at the beginning of World War I, the only Democrat was Grover Cleveland, and he did it twice. Every president between Lincoln and Wilson is Republican, except Cleveland. But Tilden was close. He was a very strong candidate. And if you see the electoral vote count, it is probably the closest election we've had in presidential history. And you can also see the popular vote count, Tilden wins. Even though Republicans are in the ascendancy, Tilden actually wins the popular vote count here. And because the electoral count was so close, a handful of states where there might have been some subterfuge one way or the other, those votes were challenged. And so as we're getting closer to Inauguration Day, we're getting closer, basically nobody is declared winner because there's evaluations of this or that state, this or that, that district. And as far as I can tell, by evaluating historically, and I'm not an expert on, on vote counting, is there were some areas in which uh, some voter fraud probably did happen, but some of those areas, there was voter fraud in favor of Tilden, and in some areas there was voter fraud in, in favor of Hayes. For the most part, it seems like this is an accurate electoral count, and Hayes should have been president all along. 
But like I said, as we're getting closer and closer to Inauguration Day, it's still not settled. So what happens is, is that the powers that be gather in a smoky room and they, they settle it. So basically what they did was they gave the presidency to Hayes. They went ahead and honored the electoral count as it appears here. But in exchange, Rutherford B. Hayes then withdraws the U.S. troops from the South, thus removing all protections for federal protections for freedmen and the Reconstruction policies of the Grant administration. So for all intents and purposes, Reconstruction ends in 1876, or in 1877, once Rutherford B. Hayes is inaugurated as president. During the post-Reconstruction era, none of the three amendments get overturned. I mean, the states really don't have a, any opportunity to overturn those amendments, but all of them were thwarted. So for instance, the 13th Amendment, as we've discussed, gets thwarted by false imprisonments, but also by the sharecropping system. Now, the sharecropping system began by necessity. So you have the entire agricultural economy of the South was mostly driven by large plantation owners. There were small farms, but, but as an economic driver, the South was driven in the antebellum period by large plantations with large slave populations. And so once you get rid of slavery, that business model is no longer tenable. And so what happens is those large farms get divided up into sections, and then the landowner still owns all those lands, and then they put their former slaves and some poor white people on different sections of those, those lands. And then the landowner then uh, allows those people to grow crops, and then the landowner gets a portion of the crops, and then the people who grow the crops get a portion of the crops. The sharecropping system. So as it, it began as a common sense land reform, driven by the market, not necessarily government. I don't think sharecropping was ever demanded by the government. It was a market-driven land reform policy. But over the next hundred years, it would be used, sharecropping would become a byword for all of the ills of, of Jim Crow America, the keeping black people in perpetual poverty. The 15th Amendment gets thwarted by grandfather clauses, by uh, violence. There were documented cases, hundreds of these, documented cases of maybe one or two brave black people showing up to the polls, and then the next day a small posse of white voters would show up and assassinate that person. It was not uncommon. There was, I don't know if it was a few hundred, but I wouldn't be surprised if there was over a hundred of these cases, uh, documented cases in, in the post-Reconstruction era. Sometimes it wasn't the violence, but just the threat of violence. So intimidation would be used to thwart the 15th Amendment, the Voting Rights Amendment. Felony convictions. Uh, sometimes people would be uh, accused of a crime so that they could be sent to the Sugarland Plantation or similar situations as Sugarland. Sometimes felony convictions would just be handed out to just make a person ineligible to vote. In fact, many states still do not allow felons who've paid their debt to society to vote ever again. That's a lingering effect of post-Reconstruction America. Poll taxes, where you would, be, you would be forced to pay a tax in order to have the right to vote, which disenfranchises not only poor black people, but a lot of times and disenfranchise poor white people as well, and immigrants of all stripes. And then probably the, the biggest one, because it was just openly fraudulent, was literacy tests. So you would, you would have to pass a literacy test to prove that you could vote. And so what would happen is, let's assume that 
a black person shows up and that black person is has no problem reading. So what they would do is they would give them uh, a really obscure legal text and force them to read it. And even if they could read it, they would just say, oh, you don't understand it. Or they would have literacy tests that weren't really literacy tests, they were just like Jeopardy trivia. And so, so a black person would be, would to, in order to prove that they had been able to vote, they surely you would know the name of every single federal judge in the state of Alabama, all 130 of them, whatever the number is. And so then they would have to list off every judge in the state of Alabama. The, the beginning of the movie Selma uh, begins with, and I don't remember the exact question, but Oprah Winfrey's character that she plays, she is asked to start naming... I believe it was federal judges in the state of Alabama. That's probably where that idea popped into my mind. And she starts listing off a few of them, and I think she gets a name wrong, and they declare her, yep, you failed, and then they kick her out of the voting rights office. And that, that not that alone, but that was an example of why Martin Luther King Jr. then does his voting rights push in Selma. Well, of course, if I show up, you know, if I'm, I'm just a... Uh, you know, normal white fella, uh, if I show up to the same office, I either won't even be given the literacy test, or even if I can't read, I would just pass. They would just pass me. And of course, they wouldn't dare ask me to name every one of the federal judges in the state of Alabama, That's because that's not the purpose of the literacy test. The purpose of the literacy test is to paint a thin veneer on top of the violation of the 15th Amendment, just to just declare voters ineligible who you don't want to vote. All right, so let's look at the third part of Reconstruction is the physical and economic reconstruction of the war-torn South. Now, I mentioned this in passing earlier, but after World War II, we instituted the Marshall Plan, named after George Marshall, who had been the general-in-chief of the U.S. Army during World War II. Marshall was over both Douglas and Eisenhower. And then later, he was Secretary of State under Truman, I believe. And as Secretary of State, he instituted this plan to use United States funds to help rebuild Western Europe, including West Germany, to try to strengthen Western uh, Europe against communist advances. And it worked. It worked for flying colors. Western Europe is still an extraordinarily economically prosperous part of this, of this world, and a lot of that can be traced to the Marshall Plan and the United States' investment in Europe. Unfortunately, there was no Marshall Plan for the South because the idea of, u- of using the federal government to directly rebuild the South didn't fly for two reasons. One, it seems that it would reward rebellion, that you could fight against us and then we'll, just, we'll, we'll help you rebuild and you'll be stronger than you were before. But also, it wasn't really the job of the federal government back then. One of these days, I want to actually sit down and trace how Americans have felt against what the government's job is. So from the very beginning, people didn't believe it was the federal government's job to have anything to do with a lot of stuff, education, transportation. Uh, Basically, the federal government's job was to pass and enforce laws, to defend our country against invasion, to enforce tariffs, etc., and that was about it. Maybe a handful of other things. But as, we've, as time has gone on, we've accepted the idea that a government should have the right and obligation to help citizens in a variety of ways. But the idea of the federal government rebuilding the war-torn South, it just didn't fly at the time. So state governments ended up doing a lot of the rebuilding. Some things were rebuilt quickly, like railroads. But some things took a long time. 
in some ways the complete rebuilding of the south would not really happen until the economic revitalization of the united states after world war ii even as late as lyndon b johnson's presidency there were areas of the south that did not have electricity his own area of West Texas did not have electricity when he was running for Senate. That was part of his push for running for Senate, was to deliver electrical lines to areas where the electric company didn't want to go. They didn't want to waste their money sending electric out there, electric lines. So the rebuilding of, of the infrastructure of the South continues well into the 1900s. Now the South of today, I've got to say, has achieved number three. I can't think of any area of the South except maybe Appalachia the mountainous areas in like Kentucky, West Virginia, Tennessee, that kind of area. Appalachian Mountains. Yeah, it's obviously it's part of the, but it's not the whole Appalachian Mountains. There's plenty of the Appalachian Mountains that are economically prosperous, but the region called Appalachia still suffers with great poverty. And of course there's individual uh, neighborhoods. That, that's the case in every state in this country. But the economic development of the South has been of late has been, if anything, outpacing the rest of the country uh, because it's warmer there and people like to move there. And uh, for right now, in time, this will change, but the uh, tax laws are a little bit better in the South. And um, over time, a lot of this will even out. But right now, I would say that the South has finally, finally achieved complete economic reconstruction. Okay, so let's end by talking about the Gilded Age, which isn't directly related to the Reconstruction, but it's about the same time and I find it interesting. So the Gilded Age was a time in which almost exclusively northern men uh, became ex extravagantly wealthy as the United States became a modern market economy. Now, John D. Rockefeller is not the first of the, the quote-unquote robber barons. There are quite a few that come before him, but he's certainly the king of them. John D. Rockefeller's wealth at a certain point, I just got done reading the book a couple months ago, so I'm going to guess that point would probably be 1915-ish. At a certain point, Rockefeller's wealth was so massive that it could not really be counted. I mean, it would take somebody, somebody would have to have taken pretty much a full-time job for a while just to count all of the resources and the various investments and divestments. I mean, he was so wealthy that his philanthropic organizations were making money. It was, I mean, he, his goal was to lose money. He had gotten to a point where he felt like he was a strong Christian. Uh, Rock, John Rockefeller was a man of vast contradictions. It, it would be easy for me to make a speech denouncing him as an evil robber baron. And then the next day I could give you a speech praising him as a wonderful man, uh, as a good father and husband, and, and as a good businessman and his good business practices. I could make both speeches easily. Uh, he, was, he was both things. But he wanted to divest himself of a lot of money. He felt like it was his duty as a Christian, so he he wasn't the first. I'd say that's probably Carnegie, but he, he was the most prolific of trying to get to fund as much philanthropy as he could. And unlike Carnegie, he didn't really feel like he wanted to put his name on the side of every building that he could find. Every library in the country. Exactly. <laughs> in fact, Rockefeller University, originally, he did not want the name attached to it. That was a decision that was made later, I think after his death. 
and Rockefeller University. I don't know much about it, but I think it's a medical university in New York, if I'm not mistaken. How did Rockefeller become so insanely wealthy? Rockefeller had early investments in the oil industry. Back when the oil industry really was, they didn't really know what to do with this stuff. He became insanely wealthy uh, making kerosene, turning oil into something you would burn to light lamps. That's how he became insanely wealthy. He also became wealthy by forcing out all of the independent kerosene producers and oil refineries in Cleveland and then later Pittsburgh, New York, Chicago, all the way along the northern United States until eventually it was really just him and a few competitors that he allowed to exist because they really didn't offer him any threat. And then whenever he would get challenged in Congress that he was running a monopoly, he could say, well, look at those guys. Those guys that offer me absolutely no threat whatsoever. I don't have a monopoly. They exist. So that's, that's how he became incredibly wealthy. And then something happened. The internal combustion engine went from being a side project of engineers and enthusiasts and became the driving force of the 1900s, the 20th century uh, economy in both Europe and America. And all of a sudden, gasoline, which I find the most interesting chapter of the, of the book I read about him, it was called Titan by Ron Chernow. The most fascinating thing I found was early on when they were making kerosene, gasoline was a byproduct that they would dump in the river to get rid of. Sometimes they would just light it on fire, but they, they would get rid of it. And then later, they would, they would, uh, as gasoline became the product they were going for, then they would have to try to find people to buy the kerosene because they didn't know what to do with all this kerosene as they were refining the oil. Because once the internal combustion engine becomes on the scene and they realize you can use gasoline to run internal combustion scene, John D. Rockefeller went from a wildly wealthy multimillionaire to a, a absurdly, obnoxiously, disgustingly wealthy multibillionaire. He is probably the world's first billionaire. I say multi-billionaire because if we apply today's inflation numbers to him, he is far wealthier than all the names we think of today like Gates and Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, or Warren Buffett. He would, he would dwarf all of those guys if you use today's inflationary figures against, or even last year's inflationary figures, let's forget this year's inflation. If you use the 21st century inflation figures on his wealth, he would be the wealthiest person. He might have been wealthier than even the entire Walmart family. Incredibly wealthy man. But he wasn't the only one during this time. You had also Jay Gould. Full disclosure, I don't know much about Gould. This, a lot of these names are, are, are names that are on my list of people I need to learn more about. But Gould became wealthy for railroads. He wasn't the only one. Vanderbilt would be the king of the railroads. But Gould was a financier who uh, had a diverse portfolio, but he got most of his money from railroad investments. You have Andrew Mellon, who I actually don't know much about, but you probably recognize his name because of Carnegie Mellon University. It was a joint philanthropic project, a joint philanthropic project between Andrew Mellon and Andrew Carnegie. But before we get to Carnegie, let's uh, uh, look a little bit here. Here, uh, Mellon had, he was the Secretary of the Treasury in the 30s, actually in the 20s and 30s. He was the United States Ambassador to the United Kingdom between the war, World Wars. So
so he had a, a significant role to play in the United States in the 1900s. Andrew Carnegie was born in Scotland. He uh, moved to the United States and was, if Rockefeller's not the king of the uh, philanthropic robber barons, then Carnegie certainly is. He was very philanthropic, gave away a lot of money, and put his name on the side of as many things he, he could. So you have uh, libraries across the country, uh, performance halls, universities, a lot of them carry his name. Carnegie Hall. Mm -hmm. Now usually when we refer to the buildings we usually say Carnegie and that's just because of our American pronunciation. I use the Carnegie as his pronunciation because that's apparently the Scottish pronunciation because all of the audiobooks I've read when they when the author speaks of Carnegie they they'll use that pronunciation. But if you're talking about concert that uh, Garth Brooks is going to play at Carnegie Hall. You, you won't, if, if you say Carnegie Hall, people are going to be like, what are you talking about? So Carnegie Hall is, or Carnegie Library, that's the, the way we, we're used to pronounce, pronouncing it. So I've just found it easier to use one pronunciation for the buildings and the organizations and the other pronunciation for the man. What was Carnegie's, uh, where does his wealth come from? He was a steel baron. The, he didn't invent the Bessemer process of creating high quality, high carbon, modern steel, but he was the one that popularized it and used it to its maximum effect in the United States and in, I believe in Scotland. I believe he had set up a lot of his economic prospects in Scotland as well. And for that matter, if, that, if I'm true right about that, probably England, France, all kinds of places he probably had steel mills. J.P. Morgan, also John, known as John Pierpont Morgan. Although if you try to Google John Morgan, his name won't even come up. He's just known as J.P. Morgan. Morgan. That's, his, that's how he's known in history. J.P. Morgan was born in Connecticut, but he died in Italy. He was a, a, a wide traveler. Where did his wealth come from? Well, you could say banking. I would say Wall Street, the, the investment side of banking. Uh, in fact, to this day, J.P. Morgan is the name of a bank, yeah. right? Yeah. Is, is it Morgan Chase now? I think it's combined with, with Chase, the organization. But yeah, J.P. Moore, Morgan and Chase. And we talked about Chase earlier that that was probably named after Salmon P. Chase. So would Morgan Stanley be then one of those derivatives? From Almost certainly. I'm not... 100% sure on that, but I would be surprised if Morgan Stanley was not part of JP of, of the same organizations that Morgan started. Now the next two names I'm going to talk about, these guys are actually earlier than the Gilded Age. They're, um, as you see when Cornelius Vanderbilt dies, he dies just about the time when Reconstruction ends. Yeah. But he he got his start with railroads, so he got his most of his wealth was built up in the antebellum period. He is easily the wealthiest man in the antebellum America through his railroad wealth. As we talk about the Civil War, we talk a lot about railroads, about how Sherman destroyed Confederate railroads, how Stonewall Jackson used the railroad to transport his troops. Railroads were used across the North to transport troops and supplies and food and weapons. A lot of those railroads, not every mile, but a lot of those railroads were built by Cornelius Vanderbilt and the companies that he established. And 
of course, my mother is a graduate of Vanderbilt University. When she wanted to get her doctorate as a psych nurse practitioner, she found out that Vanderbilt offered a program. So my mother is a graduate with a doctorate from one of the most prestigious colleges on earth. In fact, the Cornelius Vanderbilt's nickname was the Commodore, and Vanderbilt University are the Commodores. So, now this is a guy who, John Jacob Astor, this is a guy who actually dies before the Civil War. But I bring his name up because he's America's first millionaire. He gets his wealth from the fur trapping industry. And then from that, from his initial wealth, he then uh, builds his wealth through a variety of diverse investments. And then one of his descendants is John Jacob Astor III. He actually does live through this period of time. And John Jacob Astor III, he, unlike most of these guys, I don't know if every one of these guys are self-made men. John, I know John Rockefeller was. I read this book. And I'm pretty sure Andrew Carnegie, part of his story is that he showed up in America with barely the clothes he, he had on his back. So Andrew Carnegie built his uh, wealth from, from the bottom up. I'm not sure about the other men. John Jacob Astor III, obviously, uh, was not a self-made man. He came from old money. But, to his credit, he actually did serve in the Civil War, unlike some other men like John Rockefeller and Grover Cleveland who bought their way out. And I would... John Rockefeller, John D. Rockefeller, and Grover Cleveland, I think, had good excuses. They both were... John D. Rockefeller was just getting his businesses off the ground, and to leave at that point might have been disastrous to his, his, uh, the businesses he was establishing. Grover Cleveland was just beginning his career in politics, and he was the sole provider for his family. And so the federal government offered the opportunity to pay a replacement for the Union Army, and they, they did it. They paid for the replacements. John Jacob Astor III served under McClellan. He was part of McClellan's staff. By the end of the war, he had earned a brevet generalship. So he wasn't officially a general, but he had been given it as an honorary title. And then he ended up building on his wealth. He did not, he didn't, like I said, he came from old money, but he built on his wealth through real estate investments. I believe that things like the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, the famous hotel, is part of his real estate ventures. Because the name Waldorf, by the way, appears a bunch if you look at the family tree of the Astors. And of course, Astoria comes from the name Astor. So I believe he, part of his real estate investments was the Waldorf Astoria, one of the most exclusive hotels in the world. And thus concludes our discussion of Reconstruction and of the Gilded Age. hope you have enjoyed this production of the Blue Collar Scholar. I am your host, Will Wrights. Any factual errors made in the preparation or recording of this podcast are unintentional, and your feedback is welcome. You may contact me at thewillwrights at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-W-I-L-L-R-E-I-T-Z at gmail.com. Blue Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Wrights. Music by Coma Media from Pixabay. The purpose of this podcast is to educate. 
use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. We hope you have enjoyed this episode, and we hope you will be back to download more. And thank you.